I remember some years ago during my seminary days, my future brother-in-law at the time, who I was renting a room from, handed me a document. And this document had printed at the top of it, Jonathan Edwards' unpublished essay on the Trinity. At the time, it seemed like some kind of secret document. You know, I felt like I was holding in my hands this uh, mysterious document. In this document, Jonathan Edwards, he argued uh, that when we're thinking of the doctrine of the Trinity, God as three in one, you have the Father and you have the Son, and he contended that the Holy Spirit is the love that eternally emanates between the Father and the Son. It's a fascinating essay. I come to find out later that he really wasn't saying anything that Augustine hadn't already said thousands of years prior. But it it made me think of God the Holy Spirit in in a kind of new and fresh way. And all these passages started to flood my mind of the connection between the Holy Spirit and love. For instance, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Or uh, or Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, that God has uh, has poured out his love towards us by his Spirit. Or many different passages in 1 John that connect the, the new birth by the Spirit with the love that the Spirit produces in our hearts and lives. What is interesting as we look at this passage in the context of the upper room discourse of Jesus that, that he gives this instruction that two of the dominant themes we, that we see in this section are both the Spirit and Jesus' instructions related to the Spirit of God and our love for Jesus because it is the Spirit who produces that love in the hearts of believers. Jesus is about to die. And being the loving person that he is, he cares for his own. As John 13 says, he loved his own and he loved them, what? To the end. And he makes provision for them in his absence that they would be cared for. And so the the rest of our time here this morning, I want us to spend some time thinking about how Jesus, three ways in which Jesus cares for his own through providing the Spirit of God for them. The first is what I'm calling the presence of the Spirit. The presence of the Spirit. We see this in verse 21 through 24. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. This is a a tremendous statement that Jesus makes here, that the one who has my commandments and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. So Jesus here, as he's done already in this section, he connects obedience and love. Sometimes we think of legalism as... uh, People who are more concerned about obedience than us, they're legalistic. Anybody who's less concerned about obedience than me is, they're, they're, they're easy believism. But, but that's not what legalism is. In fact, we see here that obedience to Jesus is a manifestation of love 
to him. Concern about doing what he says is how we love Jesus. And then notice again this kind of, and and this is again the context of the giving of the Spirit. We see this love that goes vertical to God and then this love that comes from the Father to us. He will be loved by my Father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. So that there's this kind of self-disclosure that Jesus promises to those who love him and are walking in obedience to him. It's not altogether unlike that request that Moses makes in Exodus chapter 33. Remember when Moses is, uh, is leading the people of Israel, an obstinate people, and, and he, he cries out to God. He says, just show me your glory. And God then shows Moses something of the back ends of his glory as he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. But here, Jesus, as the great I am, as he's been declaring in the Gospel of John, says that, that, that when one is in this covenant relationship with him and loves him, that Jesus will disclose himself to him. Arthur Pink says about this, no, it is not in visions or in dreams that the Lord promises to come to his people. What then is the spiritual revelation of himself to the soul? It is the vivid realization of the Savior's being and nearness in a deep and abiding sense of his favor and love. By the power of the Spirit, he makes his word so luminous that we read it. He himself seems to draw near. The whole biography of Jesus comes in this way as a precious reality. We see his form. We hear his words. It is through the written word that the incarnate word manifests himself to the heart. And he does this by his spirit. Jesus discloses himself. He manifests himself to his disciples who are walking in obedience to him. In special ways. I think this goes very much hand in hand with a kind of assurance, this this certainty that you are loved by Jesus, that you are loved by the Father, and it is the Spirit that produces this kind of certainty in the heart. Imagine with me for a moment a, a father and a son walking together hand in hand. This would be something of the kind of natural assurance of salvation, assurance of love that a believer has with the Father in heaven. But then imagine that same father picks up that child, takes that child into his arms and smothers that child with kisses. I think that's something of what Jesus is saying here, that when one in covenant relationship with the Lord is walking in obedience and love for Jesus, Jesus discloses himself to the believer. And then notice Judas's response to this in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
What then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Notice John here records a kind of a objection. And John clarifies that this is another Judas, lest we be confused, because he's already said Judas, you know, the, the devil had entered into Judas Iscariot and he had gone out to betray Jesus. So this is Judas, not Iscariot. He's, he's, he's probably the same person that we see come up in the other Gospels, also known as Thaddeus. He says to Jesus, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Judas here is concerned that Jesus is not going to disclose himself to the world. And this is, this is a good impulse here. In fact, someone has said that Judas is the first missionary in, in, in the Bible. He's concerned about the lost world. He's concerned about the world knowing Jesus. And, and Jesus has already hinted uh, something of this exclusivity here in John fourteen seventeen, when he said, speaking of the spirit of truth, he says, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. And so Judas is understanding something here that this kind of self-disclosure that Jesus gives is not for everybody. Yes, there is a kind of general revelation. There is a self-disclosure that God gives in creation and in conscience as the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, the work of his hands. Romans chapter 1, that, 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 that through the creation of the world, God reveals his invisible attributes so that everybody is without excuse. There's that moral compass that God gives every image bearer. But there is um, something unique and special that Jesus gives as he gives his spirit. And so, verse 23, Jesus responds and answers and says to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our abode with him. So Jesus, on the one hand, he, he clarifies that this, in one sense, is for anyone. Notice the anyone of verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, but it is conditioned upon loving Jesus, upon those who keep his word. In other words, this is something that Jesus gives to those who are in a covenant relationship with him. Jesus is not teaching a kind of work salvation here that if you just 
love and obey Jesus enough, then, then he'll show himself to you. But what he's saying, those who are in covenant relationship, who've trusted in Jesus and then are walking in obedience to Jesus, Jesus discloses himself to them in a special and unique way by his spirit so that they know that they're loved by him. In fact, he even says here, shockingly, in verse 23, and we, who's the we? Jesus and the Father, (coughs) he says, will come and make our abode with him. This is shocking. So Jesus says those who love him, those who keep his word, those who are in covenant relationship with him, that he and the Father are going to make a home with them. Now, this is the same phraseology that was used in 14 earlier on in the chapter when Jesus says in verse 2, in my Father's house are many, same word here, many abodes, many dwelling places, If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. (laughs) So he's already said in 14, I'm going to prepare an abode for you, but I'm going away. Yes, and you're concerned about that, but I'm going to send my spirit and through my spirit, the father and the son are going to abode with you. This is amazing. He promises the presence of his spirit dwelling in the believer. And because the spirit is God, it is the father and the son who are dwelling with the believer. They're making their home in the believer's life. Wow. This highlights the the intimacy that is involved with those who are in relationship with Jesus so much that The triune God comes to dwell with them. We make eye contact in this world, but there is a special eye contact between my wife and myself that nobody else shares. A kind of intimacy of the look of the eyes towards one another that is reserved for a covenant relationship. Or maybe think of it in the context of refrigerator privileges. You know, you you have some relationships with friends that they can come into your house and they can just go in the refrigerator, right? And, and you don't say, whoa, 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 what's going on here? No, you, you, they got refrigerator privileges. There's such a close relationship that they can, they can dig into your leftovers. They can drink the rest of the milk. And this is, this is something what, what Jesus is saying here. We're, we're moving in. We're moving into the house. We're, we're, we're taking refrigerator privileges. You think about our homes, you know, some rooms 
are off limits, right? You know, you may, you may have people over, but you don't go in the laundry room, you know. You may even be designated with a, a you know, the clean bathroom, right? You know, don't, don't go to that other one. <clears throat> but when we think of, in this context, of the Lord dwelling with us, dwelling in us, God should have access to every room of our life. He abodes with us. Oh yeah, he, he's gonna start cleaning up and it may be painful to allow him to see that laundry room but nonetheless, he, he wants to clean it up for our good. Richard Sibbs, the English Puritan, sometimes known as the heavenly Dr. Sibbs, he says, let us give up the government of our souls to the spirit. It is for our safety so to do. Being wiser than ourselves who are unable to direct our way. It is our liberty to be under a wisdom and goodness larger than our own. He must rule. He must have the keys delivered to him. We must submit to his government. That's good. We need to give the keys of the house to the spirit. To have full reign, laundry room, everything, access to every part of our lives, the workplace, school, our marriage, our parenting. Let the Spirit pervade your life because you know what? He's wiser than you. He knows what's best for you. He knows how to run your marriage better than you do. He knows how to parent better than you do. He knows how to work in the workplace better than you do. Again, another English Puritan, John Owen, says, has the Lord chosen my pure heart for his habitation? I'm sorry, not my pure, my poor heart. Has the Lord chosen my poor heart for his habitation? Has he said, I delight in it, and there I will dwell forever? And shall I be so foolish, so unthankful, as willingly to defile the habitation which he has chosen? God has chosen to dwell with us by the presence of his spirit. We need to make him welcome. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Jesus tells us here that
the disciples have been following Jesus, right? For the past three and a half years. He's their teacher. He's been walking around, teaching them, instructing them day after day, week after week, year after year, these past three and a half years. And now he tells them he's going to leave them. Now, we can appreciate this. Sometimes we've been blessed to have good teachers. You know, several years ago, R.C. Sproul passed away, and there's a temptation to think, you know, what's going to happen to the church after Sproly Doley's dead? Or you may look at John MacArthur and think, man, that dude's getting old. He ain't got many more years left. What's going to happen to the church when he dies. And of course, we know Jesus promised, you know, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But nonetheless, Jesus here, as their teacher, as their rabbi has been teaching them, and he promises them that in his absence, the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to teach them. Teach them, notice it says here, all things. Does that mean the Holy Spirit teaches trigonometry, advanced mathematics, how to fly an airplane? No, God has given us brains for these things. The primary reference here in 1426, I think, as I argued for last week, I think is the writing of the New Testament. That Jesus promised his spirit to teach the apostles who in turn would write down the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, in the New Testament, so that we could read what the Spirit has spoken to us. This is reiterated in John 16, verse 12, where it says, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. He will take of what is mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Just in case you think this is a novel interpretation, John MacArthur, you might have heard of him. He says, but Christ promised that the Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that he had said to them was primarily a promise to the apostles of divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit's supernatural guidance granted them an inerrant understanding of Jesus Christ's person and teaching. The apostles and their close associates recorded that divinely inspired truth in the Gospels in the rest of the New Testament. And so we, we talked about that last week. We talked about 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, how, how, God, how, how, how holy men spoke from God as they were guided by the Spirit. There's one more passage I'd like to read for you that, that reiterates this truth that the primary member in the Holy Trinity who was involved in the guiding of the writers of the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> it says, But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, an ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, 
all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's often one of those verses we put on sympathy cards, right? You know, eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard. And sometimes we use that as justification for not knowing much about heaven. But if you keep reading, we actually see that God has revealed these things. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. But verse 10, for us, God has revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's the scripture. The spirit gives spiritual thoughts to the apostles that manifest themselves in spiritual words that are spirit-wrought words so that we have the voice of Jesus by the Spirit through the printed page. Now, that's not to say the Spirit doesn't have a teaching ministry post-apostolic writing of Scripture. He does, but he teaches us as he illuminates, sheds light upon the word. That's actually in the next verse in 1 Corinthians 2.14, when it says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So the Spirit teaches the apostles. The apostles write down the Scriptures, but then in space and time, thousands of years later, the Spirit teaches us what he has already revealed in the scriptures. Now, this is important because we live in a church culture that often divides, you know, this is, this is a Bible church over here. Ooh, but, but that one's a spirit-filled church over there. But hopefully you can see that's a, actually a false dichotomy because it is the Spirit of God who has revealed the Scriptures, the Bible. It is the Spirit of God who helps us to understand the Bible so that there's no dichotomy between a, a Bible-centered church and a Spirit-filled church. Now, that's not to say that there cannot be a church that may be, you know, doctrinally correct and have hearts that are as cold as ice. Certainly that can be the case. But nonetheless, the Spirit of God has given us the Word of God. And again, think of how Jesus is loving his own. He's departing. He's going to die, rise from the dead, go ascend back to the Father. But he's making sure that his voice will still be heard through the Spirit of God. And he's making sure that you hear his voice even today, thousands of years later, because you can open up the Bible and read the voice of Jesus as the Spirit has given it to us in the Bible. That's amazing. This is part of how Jesus loves you by his Spirit. So friends, we, we should not take it for granted, should we? We should not have dust bunnies building up on our Bibles. 
We have to blow off. You know, I have many books in my library, and a lot of times I pull them off, and you can just see, poof. It shouldn't be that way with the Bible. It shouldn't be dust and mites growing on our copies of the Scripture. We should be regularly feeding ourselves again because this is part of how Jesus cares for us. It's through his spirit giving us the word. So Jesus cares for his own by the presence of the spirit, the print of the spirit, the scriptures. Now thirdly, the peace of the spirit. That's peace, not P-I-E-C-E, but P-E-A-C-E. The peace of the spirit. Notice verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. And again, I want us to think of, think of that in this context of Jesus has just promised the sending of the Spirit in his absence. And it's in that context that he promises peace. And so it, it shouldn't be a shocker that we would often find peace in the rest of Scripture associated with, with the Spirit of God. Like Galatians 5.22, I quoted it already, but I didn't quote the second fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. I said second, I should have said third. Love, joy, peace. That peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God in the believer's life. So that Jesus gives this peace By his spirit. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 8 where there's this contrast between the the mind that is set on the flesh, namely the unbeliever who has not been born again, and the mind that is set on the spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, says the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. So how are we to understand this peace that Jesus gives through his spirit? Well, I think it's important to understand within this context of what Jesus is going to do the next morning, namely die on the cross as a peace offering before the Father on behalf of sinners, that there is an objective kind of peace that Jesus promises here. An objective kind of peace where he pays the price for our sin so that we are justified before God, forgiven of all of our sin, so that we are no longer at enmity and hostility before God. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we what? We have peace with God. In this context, in that context of Romans 5, the opposite of peace would be hostility or war. And so certainly it includes this kind of objective peace of man with his creator. But I think it also deals with a kind of subjective or, if you will, experiential peace. But that experiential peace is based upon that objective peace. And I think Andrew Fuller, the English Baptist, captures this when he says he defines peace as 
that sweet tranquility of soul which arises from a well-grounded persuasion of being accepted by God. That's good. That sweet tranquility of soul which arises from a well-grounded persuasion of being accepted by God. That's what Jesus is promising by his spirit. And then notice he contrasts this with the peace that the world gives in in the second part of verse 27. This is a peace not as the world gives, do I give you. And then notice he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that how the chapter began in 14.1? Where Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. So here in this section, he, this is like kind of a bookend to what he began in 14. As he's leaving them, he doesn't want their heart to be troubled. He wants them to have this peace from God, from God that comes through his spirit. And it's a peace not that the world gives. What kind of peace does the world give? Maybe a temporary peace? Not very long kind of peace. In fact, uh, <coughs> one historian has said in the previous 3,500 years, the world has seen less than 300 years of peace. In the past 5,500 years, 8,000 peace treaties have been broken. And more than 14,000 wars have been fought with a combined total of 4 billion casualties. That's a lot of fighting. That's a lot of conflict. That's a lot of lack of peace, right? I mean, you know, we, we tout that as a, as a noble ambition. We want global peace, right? The reality is it's been elusive for thousands of years. It's not to say we shouldn't strive for it, but ultimately, as long as man is a fallen rebel against the creator, there's going to be conflicts. I mean, look at it. We can't even keep peace in our marriages, in our homes, and we think we're going to attain global, worldwide peace. But then there's also a kind of peace that the world gives that's a kind of salve of the conscience, a kind of muzzling of the smoke detector of a heart that that recognizes something is not right between us and our creator. The prophets often spoke of this false peace. Isaiah 48, 22, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Isaiah 57, verse 2, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But that's not to say that the world doesn't promise peace or offer peace. Because Jeremiah 6, 14 says, where God indicts the prophets, he says, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Many a false religion will say, Peace, peace. 
Oh, don't worry about God's judgment. Don't worry. God's not a big meanie. He's not going to send people to hell. Really, everybody winds up in heaven. Everybody's in a better place. Peace, peace. But God says, no, there is no peace. There's no peace unless there's genuine peace with God. And in order to have genuine peace with God, your guilt needs to really be dealt with. Your guilt of rebelling against God, the creator, must be dealt with. And there's only one solution that God has given, and it's in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is why Jesus says in this very context in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. Why is that? Because there's only one person who has absorbed the fury of hell on that Roman cross, and it's Jesus. And he is the way in which we can have peace with God. So my friend, if you've not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus, you're sitting here this morning I say to you, not without, with any glee, but there is a bounty on your head. That when you die, according to Hebrews, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And if you do not have Jesus as your mediator, as your substitute, as your peace offering, then you will bear the full throttle of God's righteous indignation for all eternity. There is no peace for you outside of Jesus. And so you need to trust in Jesus as your only hope. And as you do that, you will realize you have been reconciled to God. There is now peace between you and your creator. Verse 28. You have heard that it was said, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. After Jesus promises this peace, he says that he's, again, he reiterates, he's going away. And he says, if you love me, you'll rejoice that I go to the Father, that this is the next step in God's redemptive plan. And then he gives this statement here, for the Father is greater than I. Now, we have to give a brief explanation here because the cultists love this verse, right? You know, those people who show up at your front door with shirt and tie, claiming to be Jehovah's witnesses. They'll bring up verses like this. See, Jesus said the Father is greater than I. Well, it's important to understand I mean, this is in the context of the Gospel of John where Jesus has already said, or, or John has already recorded, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus is, as to his essence, as to his substance, he's equal with the Father. So when Jesus says here, the Father is greater than I, he's talking about what we might call his role, her, his, uh, what you might call, the theologians call economic subordination. He subordinates himself in his relationship to the Father, which even the, the titles of Father and Son are suggestive that the Son takes a subordinate relationship with his Father. He obeys the Father. 
That does not mean he's lesser than the Father, lesser in the sense as to his being. It means that he takes a subordinate role in the relationship. And it's hard for us in Western culture for our minds to grasp that submission to someone does not mean a diminishing of identity or dignity. But according to the Bible, you can be fully equal with someone and yet submit to them. You can have different roles from them. Submission is modeled by the Trinity. The Son submits to the Father as greater than himself. He is equal to the Father and yet subordinate in his relationship. Verse 29, now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing in me. I think he's talking about Satan as the ruler of this world. Satan's gonna do all that he can to try to undo Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit's plan here, but there's nothing that will stop the plan. There's no indictment that can be brought against Jesus. Verse 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father and I do exactly as the Father commanded me, get up, let us go from here. Jesus is highlighting that the plan will go on. He's going to obey the Father. But again, all this is in the context of Jesus loving for his own by providing the presence of the Spirit, the print of the Spirit, and now here we see the peace of the Spirit. But you may be sitting here and thinking, well, you know, Matt, I I trust in Jesus. I believe I've been reconciled to God, but... I don't have a whole lot of peace in my life. You know, the reality is, is that, you know, there, there's, there's what we ought to do, and then there's also what is, right? And there's all, often that disconnect in the Christian life where we see that, that, that there is this promise of peace, but, but we don't see that peace blossoming in our hearts and lives as we would desire. So, so let me just maybe close with some application to help you to experience God's peace. How do you cultivate more peace in your life? First of all, meditate upon the gospel. Meditate upon the gospel. <clears throat> the greatest war has come to a ceasefire, namely between you and your creator that Jesus has died as that peace offering, that if you have trusted in Jesus, Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are loved by the Father. You are loved by Jesus. You are loved by the Spirit. Meditate upon the gospel. Meditate upon the reality. Notice Jesus says here, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And, you. and you stop and you pause and you think, well, what kind of peace did Jesus have that he says, my peace I give to you? Well, certainly part of Jesus' peace must be that he was in a perfect relationship with the Father. He perfectly obeyed. Jesus never confessed his sin. Jesus never had a grumbly day. Or one of those mornings where you just kind of wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You're just, 
and never happened in Jesus' life. We say, okay, that's not reality in my life. But did you know if you are in Christ Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, God credits the perfect righteousness of Jesus to your account. He treats you as if you lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. That'll bring you peace. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God imputes our sin to Jesus and imputes his righteousness to us. It's the great exchange. So that you can have Jesus' peace because you can have the imputed righteousness of Christ. And if you are trusting in Jesus, that is a reality for you. So meditate upon the gospel. Secondly, deal with any conscious controversy with God. Deal with any conscious controversy with God. You can only deal with conscious controversies, not unconscious that you don't know about. And what I mean by that, if there's any sin that you're coddling, nursing, holding on to like a, like a drunk hold, holds on to and hides a flask inside of his coat and periodically pulls out when nobody's looking, you need to throw it away. You need to own up to it, confess it. Because even for the believer who conceals sin, you, your conscience will be defiled and you won't be able to enjoy that peace that is available in the gospel. Proverbs 28, verse one, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are what? Bold as a lion. The wicked, those who know they're guilty, they hear a siren, they see the police, Why? They know they're guilty. They have a conscious controversy with the creator. And so they run even when nobody's around. But the righteous, they're bold as a lion. So, so even as a believer, we, we sin. We still have remaining sin. And we need to keep short accounts with God and own up to it. Rome, uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thirdly, unburden your concerns through prayer. You know, sometimes we, as we live in this world with disappointment and loss and tragedy and trial, like what the Disciples themselves were experiencing in the reality of their teacher, their master, whom they loved, about to die, about to unjustly be crucified on a Roman cross. There's temptations towards lack of peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for the big things. Is that what it says? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, 
by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God, and the God of peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The God of peace, the God who grants peace. First Peter 5, 7, cast your what? Cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. There, you know, many of the things in life that we allow rob us from peace are things that we have no control over. Did, did you ever think about that? We have absolutely no control. They're not in our responsibility. We can't do nothing about them. But we can't pray. We can roll them onto the Lord. Say, Lord, you know it. I'm giving it to you. I ask you to act, you to do something. There's no point in letting it rob you of your peace. So unburden your concerns through prayer. Fourth, trust God and his promises in the storms of life. Trust, isn't that how Jesus started this chapter? Let not your heart be troubled. I think we can safely say that's the opposite of peace, a troubled heart. That's how he ends this section. You know, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. John 14, 1, believe in God, believe also in me. You have to trust Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, the steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. In God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. How about Psalm 23? Peace isn't mentioned there. But if it's a psalm of trust, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down In green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters. That makes me want to take a nap. In fact, some of you have beaten me to it. Just kidding. I mean, that's peace, right? Imagine little sheep. Sleeping in the grass. Fat and sassy after it just filled its belly with munching on grass and sipping on quiet waters. That's peace. That same psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the peace that the Spirit brings. Again, Andrew Fuller. Speaking of peace, he says, it's that sweet satisfaction which possesses the mind from a view of God sitting at the helm of the universe and having the management 
of all our concerns. That's good. It's that sweet satisfaction which possesses the mind from a view of God sitting at the helm of the universe and having the management of all our concerns. Friend, do you believe that? Do you trust that God the Almighty is the sovereign? He's the one who sits at the helm of the universe. He controls all things in each and every concern that burdens your heart. He has orchestrated actually for your good. Romans 8, 28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is a warm blanket you can lay over yourself. That will bring you peace if you believe it, if you trust him. Oh, my friends, Jesus is a great savior who lovingly cares for his own, even as as he's anticipating his departure. He loves his own by giving the presence of the Spirit, the print of the Spirit, the Word of God as our teacher, and here the peace of the Spirit. We are a people who who are loved by him. There's a true story that one person tells during the height of persecution in communist China, a Christian sent a message to a friend. And in this message, it was a letter that they sent and they, they had to write in cryptic ways so that the, 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 the Chinese government would not intercept these messages and rip them up or tear them to pieces. And so this person sends this message, quote, the this I know people are well. The this I know people. It was obviously an allusion to that familiar song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The this I know message was able to get through under the radar. Friends, we are a this I know people. Let's pray.